Unless you go to Torah Shabbat Peh, unless you go to the commentaries, you go to the rabbis, you go to the Medrash, you go to all these other different places, the actual text is doesn't make sense. Maybe it does. Maybe it makes a little bit of sense, but you definitely you definitely don't know how to do what you need to do reading Torah. You don't know how to keep Shabbats. You don't know what tefillin look like. All of those things that we just take for granted are are not possible without the oral Torah. We run into a problem in Bereshis that we think we know the story because we read the story and we hear the story and it's like, it's a story. It's a weird story, but it's a story and we think we understand it. And I want to preface our class again today that if we think we understand anything about the story by reading the text, it's as if it, it's the exact same thing as saying, I would know what Tefillin look like by reading it in the Torah. Now that is very clear that I have no idea what Tefillin look like. But here we, we, we're kind of working with the back, like kind of backwards, because like we know the story, we understand the story, and, and, and we have opinions about these stories. And we have very strong opinions about these stories, because Bereshis, this is definitely one of the Parshas where I feel bad that we move so quickly through our Parsha, because there's so much happening in this Parsha. And it's like, we stay on such a surface level for most of it, and it's so deep, and it's so rich, and you really not move off, but of course, we're not going to, we're not going to fly through the Parsha, but I want to, specifically when we're talking about these Parshas, there's such seminal Parshas in the creation of the Am Yisrael, the creation of the Jewish people, and we look at the stories and we say, whoa, these people are just all over the place, like, what is going on with these stories? It just seems so weird, and it seems so strange, and it seems like so not in line with things that we do and that we know today, and so that's, again, my preface, I guess, for as we go into the Parsha to say, we have to look at everything on another layer and another layer and another layer because or else we're, we really are missing the story. And, and it's hard to understand when we actually got the story. We read the story, we see the story. What's going on in Parsha's by Yetzi? Okay. What happened last week? Who remembers last week? How did last week end? No, 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 no. What happens last week? That was the end of the partial. We have the, we have the marriage of Asa was, of Asa was the last, last thing, the last big event in last week's partial was the story of the brachas, of the blessings that Yaakov wanted to give to Asa. And in the end, Rivka moved the pieces around, she moved the chess pieces, and Yaakov ended up with both of the blessings of physicality and spirituality. At the end of last week's partial, Rivka is informed, and Rashi says that she heard from Ruch, she heard through Ruch Hakodesh, through the Holy Spirit, that Asav wanted to kill his brother, and she's now moving the pieces and saying, "Yala, let's let's go forward. Uh, you need to get out of here." Um, just an interesting thing, which it's from last week, and we're really. 
We're not going to go. We're not going back to last week. We're going to just leave it. Okay. So last week, Rivka says, go. What, is it, what does she say to Yitzchak? Why are we sending Yaakov away? To go find a wife, right? Yitzchak tells Yitzchak, Yaakov has to get married. We got to send him back to my family and he has to go marry. So he has to go get married. To Yitzchak, to, to Yaakov, what does Rivka say? You need to run and save your life. Your brother wants to kill you and you need to get out of here. And you also need to find a wife. But the bigger thing that she's talking about, the first, her first motivation is that he, his life is actually in danger and he needs to, he needs to move. Um, and so, so he leaves. Now, our, our Parsha, Parsha Spayetze, starts with uh, Yaakov leaving. We have the repetition of Yaakov leaving Beersheba, which Rashi gets into, which we're not going to get into. The first thing that I want to stop on, the first event, is probably one of the most famous images in maybe not all of Judaism, but like in a lot of places, one of the most famous images we have of Yaakov Vayifka Bamakom. He literally bumps into a place. He sleeps there because the sun went down. And what does he see in his dream? A ladder. He sees a ladder, right? He described, he, he talks about, what does he see? He, he sees Vayachlom in verse 12, Vihine Sula of Arte. He sees a ladder that is firmly implanted in the ground. It is so entrenched down here. But the top of this ladder is going to be in the heavens. And what else does he see on this? He sees angels of God going up and coming down on this. Okay? This is his image. This is his dream. This is his image. And he sees Hashem on top of it. And Hashem gives him all these assurances that I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to bless you. And you're the land that you have. I'm going to give to you. And then blah, blah, blah. And, and you're verse 12. And your children will be like like the dust of the land. We can all start singing the song if we want. This is where he's getting the assurances of this land is going to be your land. And you're going to have this. And you're going to have children. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. And he wakes up. And he says, wow, how did I not know that God was in this place? How could I have just slept here? How could I have like, not been aware of this place? And the commentators tell us it was on Hara Maria. It was where the Bet HaMikdash was going to be built. And that's where he slept. We're not getting into everything about the conversation about this because then we're never going to move forward. And we do want to try to move forward a little bit. Very, very interesting. First of all, the, the image of the ladder is used in many, many, many different areas of Judaism to represent different stuff, okay? Some of the things we know that the, the, the latter represents is tefillah, it represents prayer. We start off in the morning, we are moots of art, so we are so grounded. We're like, you know, we're not spiritual and high. We're just like so grounded. We're just waking up, we're starting our day. And through prayer, we're meant to sort of pick ourselves up and go and go and go. And there's different conversations, which we can, we can take up in a different class about how prayer actually is a ladder, how we're going from one stage to the next, climbing up. They describe, most of the commentators talk about the, that the ladder had four rungs between, between earth and heaven. And so we have this place that through prayer, through really not just saying the words, but through really talking to Hashem, we really move ourselves from this place of like, we're so just awake and we're so down here in the earth and we're so here and, 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 and it's going to help move us uh, up to, um, it's going to move us to a place, to a spiritual place. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think about for the latter is um, 
it's like uh it's like it's really to me it symbolizes like the jewish the, the dichotomy of being jewish because we are being asked to be a ladder we are being asked to be sulam mutz of art so we're meant to be involved with the world we're meant to be not entrenched in the world like we're so physical but like we deal with the world we live in a world we don't live like in a ghetto, I mean, except when we get put into ghettos, but that's not our place that we want to be, right? We, we're meant to be involved in the world. We're meant to be, to impact the world. And still, and still we're meant to be spiritual people. We're meant to be not affected by the world. We're meant to somehow make this bridge between heaven and earth. And I think all the time, like, if we were told that we had to be like materialistic people, like Sababa, we could figure out how to do this. You know, we have plenty of, we can do this one. And if we're told to be spiritual people, okay. So for some of us, it would be harder, but we would know how to be spiritual people. But what are we being asked to be? We're asked to be spiritual people who are very involved with the world, who are asked to be good neighbors and good salespeople and doctors and lawyers and leaders and teachers. And not just in, the world of nonprofits, not that I'm knocking nonprofits, but I'm just saying like, we're meant to impact the world and still, and still be our head in the ground. I saw a beautiful, beautiful essay by Rav Adin Steinsaltz, which we spoke about last week. I kept calling you Rav Adin, I was bothering you. So he said that it's interesting. We know that the, that the angels were going up and down, right? It talks about, and everybody's gonna know why the angels are going up and down. We're gonna get to that in a second. So actually say that. So Rashi brings the thing. What are the angels going up and down? Who's going up and down? So the Rashi brings from the Medrash that there are angels that accompany a person all the time. And the angels that live in Eretz Yisrael are not allowed to go out of the land of Israel. And so since Yaakov is in a transition point and he's on his way out, so the angels that accompanied him all the time, they're going up to heaven. And the angels that are going to take him and be with him and accompany him when he's there, they're coming down. So first, the ones who are with him are going up to say, Chevret's changing the guards. Who's going with Yaakov to, to Haran? Go, you guys take it down, right? We don't have to say, the angels of Eretz Israel are not allowed to leave the Holy Land. And the angels that dwell on you while they're in Israel. That's what he's saying. So he's saying. Like, the, the angels that are that are there to protect uh, you know i was i never i don't know where this is from but i once heard okay it could be totally made up i don't know but i once heard that every single child has an angel that's sort of hovers around to make sure that they don't get more hurt than they usually do but jerusalem children have two <laughs> because they're so wild Jerusalem kids need two angels to make sure they stay safe. As a, a mother of Jerusalem children, I totally, I, I totally see that. I know that that's that's for sure true. Anyway, why does it go around alone everywhere? No, because they they have so much energy and spirit and no sense of boundaries. More so, I think than any other children in the world. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just like I've lived here. This is where I raised my children. But like, <laughs> there's like another, there's like another level of what's going on over here. So, so they need a little bit of extra protection. Um, but yes, so, so there is this, there is this concept that we are protected, that we have, we have, um, yeah, we have protection with us, and the protection that we have in the land of Israel is different than the land than the protection that we have out of the land of Israel. So Yaakov is going through a changing of the guard situation going on over here. But Rav Adin says a very, very beautiful thing because it says that the Malachi Elohim Olim V'yordim Bo are going up and down it. And it, we always assume that it means the latter. But Rav Adin says, 
They were going up and down Yaakov. They were going up the ladder towards where the Torah tells us that Hashem is on top of the ladder. And they were looking at the throne that Hashem sits on. And there are images. Cheskel discusses the, the Merkava, the chariot that Hashem sits on. And they see an image of a person, which is the images of which is the image of Yaakov. And then they come down and they're like, he's sleeping. And they go back up to double check and they come back down. And they're saying, how is it possible that you who reflect the divine, you are the image of the divine image of the human version of the divine image. How could you be sleeping? And Rabbi Dean says, it's a message to each and every one of us. If we really believed, if we knew, first of all, and believed that we were created in the divine image, then could we sleep through stuff that's going on? I'm not saying sleep at night. Yes, sleep at night. But I'm just saying on, on a more like a, on a more like a emotional or metaphysical thing, like how could you sleep through your life? How could you just be coasting through life if you are you are created in the divine image? How do you Yala, we have stuff to do. Get up, start your day, dive in, learn, like change the world. What are you sleeping for? I'm not talking about at night. At night, everybody should get as much sleep as they do. But I'm just talking about, you know, we, we see it with ourselves. We see it with, it's easy to see it in other people, but forget about looking at other people. We need to look at ourselves and say, we all know that there's times in our lives where we could be more active. And we're just like, in the car. I just have no energy for this. <laughs> like, let somebody else worry about this problem for a change. And really, this is what one of the images of the ladder that it's, it is our job when it, it does bother us. We need to get up and we need to do something about the issues that we feel passionately about and not just say, it's a big world. Somebody else will worry about it. I, I can't, I can't, you know? So I wanted to stop on this imagery for a second. Um, uh, and then he gets up and we're going we're gonna to continue moving because we're never going to get through the Parsha. Okay, so he come. the next thing that we have, the next image we have is Yaakov arriving in Haran. Okay, and, and Rashi tells us that Haran is a place, it's called Haran, because it's Haran Afshel Makom, it's a place that angers Hashem, it's not a place of holiness and spirituality, and it's really not a great place, but this is where he's coming, and this is where he's leaving, he left his family, he left the house of Yitzchak and Rivka, and he left the Holy Land, he left Rasheva, and he's going to Haran, and, um, and he, he comes, and the first thing that he finds is he's at a, he's at a, he sees a well and he sees all the shepherds around and they're not watering their sheep and he wants to know what's going on and then he sees Rachel coming and he loves Rachel and um sorry let me just where are we up to he's we're like uh, blah, 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 blah. chapter 29 verse 9 and 10 and 11 that he he goes and he sees Rachel Rachel's coming with the sheep and he he uh says that that he he sort of like takes the this there, there was a, a stone on top of the well that they couldn't get off. They needed all the shepherds to do it together. And he sees Rachel and he has like this incredible strength. And he like pops it like a cork rush, he says, takes the stone off, gives water to her sheep. He kisses her and he cries, um, which becomes a, also like a kind of interesting situation. Like, first of all, why is he kissing her? And second of all, why is he crying? Like you, you get to do one or the other. Um, uh, so different commentaries have different conversations about it. One of the reasons they all, most of the commentaries that I saw talk about the fact that his kissing her is not, um, it's not sensual at all. It's kind of like, you know, some, some families, they greet each other with kisses and their relatives are first cousins, right? Um, Yaakov and Rahul are first cousins. 
Um, and so like, it's sort of like a cousin kind of greeting. It was, and then he introduces himself. Everybody seems to say that it's not, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a more, uh, more sensual than that. And then he cries. And the question is, why does he cry? So Rashi says that he sees that she is not going to be buried with him. And, and that bothers him because he understands there is some, some kind of connection, like a really tight intrinsic connection that he sees with Rachel. And the fact that they aren't going to be buried together somehow means that maybe he's reading it wrong. Maybe that's not exactly what's going to happen. Um, and he ends up, he meets his uncle Lavan and Lavan, when, Rick, when, uh, when Rachel goes back and tells Lavan that Yaakov is here, he comes expecting what was Lovin's last experience with a Abrahamic family member? Oh. A lot of money, right? The last time Lovin had an experience with Eliezer, Eliezer came with 10 camels laden with stuff. He comes running out. We just won the lottery! And he sees Yaakov with nothing, nothing. Um, and, and, and Rashi at this point explains that what happened? Why does Yaakov come with nothing? So we could, so there's some conversation he was running, his mother's like, run, 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 go. So he, he was running around, he had nothing. And also some of the commentators talk about that. He was crying because he didn't have anything to give her because he had run so quickly. There's holes in that argument, but let's leave it, let's leave it alone for now. But, um, but one of the things that Rashi, one of the things that Rashi brings here is that of course his parents, his father sent him to go find a shit up, right? His mother says, run for your life. His father's like, go find a wife. So of course his father sent him, Yitzchak was rich. He sent him with stuff, go find a wife, go impress this girl, go like, you know, you need to start your life. You need to have, you know, and what happens along the way as they're, as Yaakov's coming along the way, Eliphaz catches up with him. Eliphaz is Esav's, is, is, sorry, Eliphaz is Esav's son. And he said, my father wants me to kill you. And he hesitates and Eliphaz hesitates because he grew up in, Yaakov, in Yitzchak's house and he, Yaakov is his uncle. And he, he's, he has, on the one hand, we know Esau and Kibarov, this is like a big thing. We listen to our father. On the other hand, he knows Yaakov and he's conflicted. He doesn't want to kill him. He's like, but what do I do? How do I like, how do I deal with this? And which is such an interesting thing when we think about it, we spoke about it last week, how they have two children. We keep calling them children, but they're like 60 year olds, but they have two children who are problematic. And who do they send away? The good one, right? Holding the one who is the more problematic child close to them actually saves Yaakov's life. The fact that Asa was always welcome in the family means that Elif has a relationship with him. And when push comes to shove and his father's like, you go kill your uncle. He chases him because he has to live with his father, but he can't just kill him. So they come to a pshara'at, they come to a compromise and Yaakov says to him, take all my wealth. In the Gemara, it, said, it will say, it doesn't say at this point because there's no Gemara there, that an ani chashuv kameh, that a, a poor person is like a dead person, take all my money and then you fulfilled your obligation to your father to kill me. I am like a dead person. And so Alifas takes off all, takes all the money and leaves and Yaakov shows up with nothing. And he feels terrible about this. And what's going to end up happening? He's going he's gonna to want to marry. Rachel, we know the story. Um, so he's going to want to marry Rachel and, and Lovin is going to say to him, uh, work for seven years and then you can marry, you can marry Rachel. And then what happens the night of the wedding? We know this story. What happens? Sorry. What happens? He gets Leah. 
He gets Leah. He says, I want to marry Rachel, your youngest daughter, Rachel Bichatana, with your Rachel, your daughter, your youngest daughter. Like, you can't do any of these shenanigans and like go pick somebody up, change somebody name. And in the end, he ends up with Leah anyways. Um, and I really, really want to spend some time talking about Rachel and Leah. And um, and the clock is not a friend. Um, and, and then after that, when in the morning, in the morning, we're gonna let's jump a second before that. Uh, blah, 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 blah. He says to him, uh, chapter 29, verse 25. Um, first of all, one of the one of the things I learned from my son when he was in Ghana hundred years ago, not really. Okay, the word barzel is iron. And it's an, and if you want to remember, Yaakov's gonna end up with four wives in this parsha. Spoiler. Okay, we have Rachel over here, and we have Leah over here. And with each one of them, Lavan gives them a like a, a maidservant, somebody who's gonna be like a personal assistant. And so to continue with the with the deception, he has two sisters who are going to be the maidservants. He gives the younger sister. Talea, because right, Yaakov thinks he's marrying Rachel, who's the younger sister. So he gives Zilpa to Leia, and he gives Bilha, Bilha to I think she might have two days. I'm not sure. And he gives Bilha to Rachel. So first of all, if you want to remember who has who's with who, this is a really great acronym. Thank you, Mendel. Um, and, um, and also he gave the Leah was the first wedding, so Yaakov thinks he's marrying the younger daughter, so he gives the younger of the two maidservants. Remember, Yaakov's been around for seven years. He knows the players in the house. So this is all to kind of work the deception so, so he doesn't, so he doesn't, um, so he doesn't uh, get filled in. And then the next morning, he, Yaakov is extremely unhappy, as you can imagine, and he goes to Lavan and he says, and Lavan's like, fine, wait a week, and then you could marry Rachel. And so that is in fact what he's going to do. And that's where we have the laws of Sheva Brachot from this whole thing, which is a whole different weird situation, which we, we don't have time to get into, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, but I want to, okay, now here, this is not a spoiler, but we don't really have time for this so much. Okay, we, they're going to have, okay, in the next bunches of Aliyahs, Yaakov is going to have 12 children. He's going to end up having 11 boys and one girl. Okay. And we're going to, we can look through the psukim, but if we have time at the end, we'll do it. But if not, then you're, we're going to find Leah is going to end up having four children. Then Rachel is going to give Bilha. Okay. Leia's gonna have, I'm gonna take another color and see if this works, okay? Leia's gonna have four children. Who are the four children that she had? Who are her first children? Anybody wanna look at the classic in the beginning of, it's the beginning of Shlishi. She's gonna have Reuven. Huh? Where is it? And over here, in chapter 29, verse 32. It starts from verse 32. She's gonna have Reuven. And then she's going to have Shimon, and then she's going to have Lady, and all the the Imahot are 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 they're not foremothers. What are they? They are foremothers, right? Forefathers. The other four. So they knew they knew that Yaakov was supposed to have four wives and twelve children. 
Lay does the math. I have three. I did my part. Check. Lady, I'm done. I got my part going. And then she's pregnant. And then she has another child called Yehuda. This is what she thanks Hashem. You can follow in a second. It's all going to be And she's going to thank Hashem for her, uh, that she has even more than her part. Because she knows she's supposed to have three. And now she has four. Okay. So then Rachel sees that she's not having any children. So she says to Yaakov, take Bilhah, marry Bilhah, and like, like have relations with Bilhah. And then her children will be like my children. They're, they're on my name. And so Bilhah is going to have two children with Yaakov. She's going, he's going to have, I believe, Don and uh, what are they Jewish? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, it's a very good question about Jewish versus souls versus whatever, because these maid servants are going to be mothers of tribes and the Jewish people. Right. So I don't know. I don't know the halakhic definition. So she's going to have two children. She's going to have Don and Asher. And Rachel actually names those children. And then Leah sees, oh, I'm not having any more children. So she gives Will and God. It's kind of funny. Um, and she gives Zilpah and, and Yaakov, and sorry, Zilpah has of Naftali and Asher. Okay. And then we have a little bit of it. Oh, Don, Don, and Naftali. God, sorry, and Asher, I apologize. Thank you. See what happens when you don't look into the sources? You make things up. Um, uh, and then we have a, a story where with Ruben, we're not going to get into the story because we don't have time. And then Leah, basically what happens is that Rachel and Leah switch. They're supposed to have, I mean, you, you have four wives. You need to like juggle where you are going to be. So they end up switching nights. And Yaakov goes to Leah one night instead of going to Rachel. And then she is going to have another child. She's going to have... Uh, she's going to have Yisachar, and then she's going to have Zebulun, and then she finds herself pregnant again. And she's like, she saw in Ruch HaKodesh that she is carrying a boy, and she said, if I have a boy, my sister has less than the maidservants, and that is not happening. So she said, she, the Torah tells us, Rashi brings it down, that she davened, and she changed the sex of her child in utero. In fact, the Gemara tells us that anybody who chopped, anybody who's already pregnant, like, like a, not just like five minutes, but like I think after 40 days, who prays for a specific sex for their child, it's considered a prayer that's useless. It's already done. It's by 40 days, the sex of the child according to Solomon is already set. And if you then pray, please God, let this be a girl, please God, let this be a boy, whatever, it's considered a, like a wasted prayer because you can't pray about facts that already are or aren't. One second. But Leah does that. And she saw that she was carrying a boy and she changed, she davened and she changed the sex of her child that Rashi brings down. And she now has a girl called Hina. And she married a boy here. Huh? She, she married a boy like Caprice. Right, so this is gonna happen next week's Parsha. Yeah, Dina's gonna have issues. But Dina's, Dina's over here. And then Rachel, and then Rachel has her first child and she calls him Yosef. Okay, now 11 of the boys, and the one daughter that's named are all born in this parsha. And Yaakov says, Lovin, Habaita, I'm going home. Yeah, you should have 11 boys and one girl. Right? 
we're going home. He says to his wives, clever, let's go. We have nothing, we have nothing here. Uh, first he says, I want you to pay me for all the work I did. All these kids, by the way, all these kids are born in a space of seven years, right? When you have children with more than one wife, you can pull that off. But from her Uve till Yosef is seven years. So you have to like kind of figure out how pieces fit into the story that are always pregnant. Well, besides that, they're always pregnant, but it's going to end up when we talk about like ages and how old people are, when we deal with biblical ages, it becomes like a little bit uncomfortable, but it's just something interesting to pay attention to. Adina, you got a question? Wait, she prayed for the gender to be changed because then Russell wouldn't have had any guys? No, she would have. There's one more child waiting to be born. There is one more. We have 12 tribes, 12 male tribes. The last tribe, who's the last tribe? Binyamin. Binyamin is not born in Haran. He's the only one of the tribes that is born in the Holy Land. Okay? Everybody else is born outside. So, so she says, if I have a boy, then there's only one child left out of 12. There's, there's a 12 magic number, right? 12 months, 12 axes, 12 tribes, all interrelated according to Kabbalah. She's like, there's only going to be 12. So if I have seven boys, here's where the missing piece is. Okay. Wait, what's the order? So first, okay. Ruben, Shimon, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Hmm. Wow. Sabina was born twice. It, it seems it's unclear from the Mepharshim if they were pregnant at the same time, but they're definitely, she was definitely born first, or she was pregnant first, or she, right? Okay. Hmm? She has to be pregnant. Listen, they could have both been at the same time, but she makes this decision and therefore she gets named before Yosef. I don't know. Even though the Pasuk does say that that after she has Yosef, then it says that that after Dina's born, it says that Rachel is becomes pregnant and has a baby. So it does look like Dina's born before Yosef. Question? No. Okay. What do I want to talk about, Parsha? First of all, there's so much to talk about. Um, I want to talk about Rachel and Leah because there's so much happening between Rachel and Leah. It's going to lay, according to a lot of the commentaries, it's going to lay the foundation of what's going to happen to the rest of Jewish history. For sure, the book of Beratius, it's going to have ramifications. But I want to back up a second. And the, the image that I want to go to for a second is um, the the morning after, okay? Or not even the morning after. What happens? Yaakov works for Rachel for seven years. And this is not a secret. Everybody knows he's working for Rachel, right? He's, he, he's, he's putting down time so that he can marry Rachel. And, you know, there's no, there's no super, there's no like department stores to go buy your stuff. So Rachel is spending those seven years getting ready for her wedding. She's, I'm making this up. This is, I'm taking, I'm taking the artistic license. You can, you don't have to buy my whatever. She's sewing sheets and she's making her dress and she's putting embroidery on the edges of lace and she's all this stuff. And she, it's all handwork and she's doing all this stuff. Besides her spiritual preparation, I'm talking about a physical preparation. And then finally the day comes, she's going to marry Yaakov. And all of a sudden the hairdresser comes and the makeup artist comes and everything. And they're like, okay, Leah, come sit in the chair. She's like, what do you mean, Leah? This is my day. What about Leah? 
And Lavan's like, no, this is how it's going to happen. Leah's getting married. Rachel has two choices at this point. Okay, given that this is a, a different time frame, she's not just going to say, hey, Yaakov, let's run away to, to Chicago and take up an apartment by ourselves. Like, that's not happening, right? In this reality that she lives in, she has two, she has two choices. And she goes with such a massive, massive, massive choice that for history, we are reaping the benefits. Because Rachel says, she and Yaakov were a little suspicious of her father. He's called Lavan Harami, Lavan the trickster for a reason. And they had made up these, whatever signs that they had to, um, between each other, just to confirm that this is the right person. Because once upon a time, the bride came to the chuppah veiled. The whole custom of seeing the bride and having this veiling ceremony is because of the story with Rachel and Leah. The bride is coming veiled. So they were like, oh my gosh, what if he does something weird? We're going to have these signs and we're going to know that it's really us. And Rachel gives those signs to Leah. Because she's like, there's no way my sister's going to be embarrassed in front of the whole community. It's just not happening. It's not happening on my watch. And years later, when the Jews are taken off into exile and, and the others and the patriarchs and everybody's coming in crying to Hashem and Hashem's like, no, they brought idols into my house, like not happening, forget it, forget it. And Rachel is the only one the prophet tells us who's able to go to God and say, you're God. They brought worthless idols into your house. What do you care? I brought a real life rival into my house. And Rachel doesn't know she's going to marry Yaakov in a week. She doesn't know that. We know that because we have the story. We know what happens. She doesn't know. She knows that this person who is literally her soulmate is gone. And she's like, I am not letting my sister be embarrassed in public. It's just not happening. And we, for generations, how many generations are we from this story? We reap the benefit, the promise, the shavubanam was given to Rachel that the children will come back to the boundaries that they, we will be, that we will be redeemed from exile. Rachel is the mother of the Jewish people in exile. When when we when Rachel is buried, spoiler for you know another parsha, she's not in Mars in Achera. She's on. She's buried on the way, right? And, Ra- and, and Rashi talks about it later on. Why is she not buried in Mars Nachtela? Because her choice was to be there for her children when they're taken off into exile. And you know the first child who comes and cries at her grave is? Yosef. When his brothers sell him and he's going to Egypt, he's the first one to come and cry to his mother and say, help me. She's the first one. And she stays there for us to go to exile and say, Mama, you have to help us. You can't just let us go off without anything, any promise of coming back. It's not happening. And she goes to God and he says, for you, I'll do it. Not for anybody else. For you. And to, to have that, in Yiddish there's a word, kite. I'm not going to say it in English. This, this, this expanses, expansiveness of spirit is something that Rahul had. And she said, what is good for my family, what's good for my sister, I'm putting myself aside. Now, we know what happens at the end of the story is that she does, in fact, get to marry Yaakov a week later. And it's going to be, it's going to be a complicated story. It's going to be a complicated story. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Because when you look at the story, it, so many parts of the story seem petty and seem 
we have to step out for a second and we have to say, Bega, what is the story? The story is yes about Rachel and Leah, but we're also going to talk about on an emotional level what is this talk, what is what is Hasidus talk about in the story. But I want to put that aside for a second and I want to say, I want to share a medrash. I think it's a kind of cute little medrash in the morning. So here the Torah tells us that that Yaakov didn't know the whole night that he was with Leah. He didn't know. And in the morning, uh, in the morning he sees that it's Leah. So it says, so the Pasuk tells us that he went to love and he said, what did you do to me? The Medrash says that in the morning, Yaakov looks at Leah and said, what did you do to me? And Leah looks at Yaakov and says, who do you think I learned this from? Who dressed up? as somebody else, and went to get blessings that belonged to his brother. So Hasidah says, is this just a snarky medrash? Like, that can't possibly be, like, that's my word, right? That can't be. It seems like just being like, oh, tit for tat. Well, that is not a really good basis for a marriage. I would just like to say, in case you're wondering, being snarky to your spouse is just not a nice thing to do. So Hasidah is like, what does this mean? What, what, is this in, what is this exchange? And Hasidah explains that, remember we talked about last week, that Yitzhak had a vision of the two of them working together, Yaakov and Esau working together. Well, if they're gonna be 12 tribes, six are gonna come from Esau. It says to Yaakov, when you took my, your brother's blessings, you also took his tribes. And we're gonna see how many tribes does Leah end up having? She has six. She has half of the tribes because in that vision of Yaakov and Esau sharing the Jewish people, Six of the tribes were supposed to come from Esau. And when Leah, sorry, when Yaakov takes the blessings from Esau, he also gets his wife, Leah, and he also gets the six children that were supposed to come from him. So they're all now under Yaakov because that's what the ultimate vision was supposed to be. But that's kind of like the measures, how we look at that. I thought that's a cute little measures and a little bit of an, an explanation on that, which sort of makes, I don't know, made me smile. So, we're going to talk about Rachel and Leah for a little bit because there's so much to talk about in the parsha. We just have to pick one and we're going to run with one. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I have the words. I just have to find them. So Chazidus talks about, yes, every single, every single thing that we talk about in Torah is a story and there were people, there was a Rachel and there was a Leah and there was a Yaakov. These were their children. These were their struggles. And the reason we have these struggles recorded is because this is what we have to learn from. But if we zoom out a little bit, what do Rachel and Leah represent? They don't, they're not only two people, but they also represent two, two, um, I'm going to say forces, but it's not really forces. You'll see what I say. So Leah, what do we know about Leah? We know that she has an extremely, extremely powerful level of prayer. She's able to change the sex of her child. Talks about how her eyes were red because she prayed she was supposed to marry Asaph and she didn't want to. So she ends up marrying Yaakov. So, you know, that has to like, her prayer literally changes destiny. Okay. That is very, very, very deep. This is not shouted on the rooftops. This is deep internal stuff. Okay, Leah represents the Alma Discasia. Leah represents the hidden world. Leah represents our subconscious, the things that are, we don't even know are our things, good and bad. Leah represents 
everything that's very deep and very real and very, not that the other stuff isn't real, but it's like, we just don't even know that it happened, that it's there. You know, there are things that happen in our lives and we just, sometimes you have a visceral reaction to something and you don't know why you're having a reaction. So the story of Leah tells us if there's something that's so, so deep and so subconscious for you that you've buried it so much, when you encounter it in another form, you are not going to love it. You're going to have a visceral anti-reaction to it because it's hitting something that you don't even know that you're not dealing with, right? Leia is the hidden world, the deeper world, the, the prayer world. Rachel is described as beautiful inside and outside. Fatori, Fatmire. Inside and outside, very, very beautiful. Rachel is Alma Disgalia, the revealed world. She, she represents the stuff that we know about ourselves, the stuff that we excel in, the stuff that we need to tweak, anything that we know about ourselves or our spouse or our friends or our children, that's Rachel behavior. But if we think that that's all there is, that the Rachel, the revealed stuff is all that we have, it's not true. Rachel is the stuff that we're attracted to. Rachel, Yaakov is, is, is attracted to Rachel because of what he sees is revealed, what is so same as him, that didn't make sense in English. That is so, like it, the things that they're so similar in, that is really what is attracting Yaakov. And that is really what pulls us in any situation to another person. It's the ruffle part of their personality. If we think for a second that they're only ruffle, then we don't know them well enough because everybody has Leia. All of us are both ruffle and Leia. All of us have the parts that we know and that we do and that are beautiful and that are revealed, good and bad, by the way. Like the things, the things that we struggle with are also part of our revealed life. But the stuff that we don't know about and therefore we can't deal with because we don't know about it because it's in our subconscious. The Altarab in the Mitzvah ever talked about this years before pop, pop culture saying that this is our reality, that there is this place of, of deep, deep subconscious and we have to deal with it. And Yaakov's real avoida is not going to be with Rachel. He's not going to live with Rachel for a long time. He has, but when here's a spoiler, if I ruin the story for you, I'm really sorry. But by the time they come into the land of Israel, Rachel's going to pass away. She's going to give birth to Binyamin and she's going to, she's going to pass away. He's going to live his longest amount of time with Leah. He's going to be buried next to Leah. He has the most children with Leah. The place of where is our real avoida? Now, I want to just say, our, we do have work to do with the stuff that we know about ourselves, right? We have qualities. We have things that we need to tweak. All of those things are true, and we still need to work on them. But the stuff that's the real deep avoida, that's going to be from the, the Leia part of our personality and of, of the people that, that, are, that we are closest to and the people that we are, you know, that we're involved with. If we think we just get to have the stuff that we know, that's really not what the situation is. There's really a lot more to every single person, starting with ourselves, you know, and, and it's, I don't know that it's a question that we need to, I, I don't know if the answer is go excavate deep or, or is the answer that when we, the places of Leia kind of pop out at us. We can't plan for them. They're things that we don't know and therefore we don't know how to prepare for them. But when they happen, we need to be able to receive and embrace and say, wait a second, what am I supposed to do here? It's not like the Ruffle stuff. The Ruffle stuff is like, you know, we know or we don't know or we can learn and we have to learn and we have to work on ourselves. But all of a sudden we find ourselves in a situation 
that we didn't plan, that we didn't, how do we deal with this now? That's Leia. That's our Leia space coming through. And then we have to know that that's really where our deep avoida is. Our, our, our real service is going to come when we tackle those places and we really excavate and say, wait a second, why, you know, why is this triggering me? Why am I, why is this bothering me? Why is this something that I can't, I have such a reaction to go and take another look and go do some, go do some figuring out because there's going to be some avoida over there uh, for, for us to do. We did not do Rachel and Leah justice. We started the tip of the iceberg. I wanna, I wanna put out a call that we not look at them and say, wow, what a terrible relationship they had. They really, they do not. They, the terror records very few stories about them. They have a very, very deep, very intense relationship. Um, and it's gonna be a relationship that's going to actually reflect through Jewish history um, all the way through the children of Rachel versus the children of Leah and how that has ramifications um, both for Yosef in the next couple of parshas and then later on for the Jewish people as a whole. There's always going to be this um, seesaw going on between them and, and the question of who really at the end of the day, they're both our mothers, you know, but when we, but when we talk about them, we always say Rachel and Leah. And it's not just, you know, whatever, it's because there's a place of the ruffle is that which attracts us and is the stuff that we know and the lay is the harder stuff to deal with. Um, we, we, if we had a year, we could develop the relationship more. We don't have a year. We have another five minutes and I want to share one last final thought with us. Last final thought that I want to share with you um, is at the end of Parsha's video, so we skipped so much. I just have to tell you, I feel terrible. We skipped a ton. But the end of the end of Parshas Vayetze, um, let me just find exactly where it is. Okay, chapter thirty-two, verse two. It's Mamish. It's the last two psukim of the Parsha. It, they had a love. He had a run-in with Lavan. One last run-in with Lavan, and now he's going. Yaakov and Yaakov goes on his way. bo and angels of God bump into him or meet him. Where do we have angels of God before? With, with, with Yaakov, where do we find a hut? In his dream. He started, we start off the parsha with the angels of God coming. And Yaakov says, I have Machanayim, I have, I have camps of angels. And Rashi says, Who are these? Who are these angels? Who are these? So Rashi says, Malachim shall eretz Yisrael bao likrato levoto that the angels of the Holy Land came out of the Holy Land to escort him back in. Now we started this class and we said, angels of the Holy Land don't leave the Holy Land, right? They, they changing of the guard, that whole situation, that was the beginning of the class, but it's, it's not so long ago. At this point, 20 years have passed and angels, the angels from Eretz Yisrael are coming to bring him back in. And in Hasidus, it talks about that Yaakov going to Haran is a description of the soul coming from heaven, leaving a place that's amazing and beautiful and sitting with Yitzchak and Rivka and learning Torah and basking in the glory of God, which, by the way, we don't use that expression for anything else except basking in the glory of God. Um, and coming down to Haran, we come down to the, the, the soul gets bodied and it has to work and it has to be in a place that is not happy with God. It's we're in a place of Haran. We're in a place that God is not found easily. And, and it's so hard for the Neshama here. And it's so hard. 
And yet, when we do our time in our body, and it should be a long, healthy 120 years, um, and we impact the world, and we encounter the people and the things and do what we need to do and elevate all of that, when we come back, the, malachi, the malachim of Eretz Yisrael now are coming to greet Yaakov. They're coming to say, wow, we didn't think it could be done. We're so, like, we're so proud of you. Like, we're here to like, be an honor guard to take you back. And that's really what happens in the Shema, that by after 120 healthy years, when we've done our Avaidah and we've changed the world and we've impacted the world, we, we come back to Hashem. And we're, the point isn't that after 120 years, when the Shema goes back and is as good as it was, it's going to come back in a much better place because we have done what we needed to do. And really, Yaakov is going to be the one who's going to, we're going to follow his journey and see how he does it. And that's going to tell us how do we need to go impact the world? How do we, how do we do all the things that we need to do? How do we do all of those things? We're going to do it when we follow Yaakov's journey. And that's how, uh, that's kind of a lesson for our neshama of how we come into this world, impact the world, and then come back at the, after all our time, having made a real difference in the world. So I want to give us all a bracha that this is, we're still in the first week of Kislev and we're, our light is shining and getting brighter and stronger because that's what the whole month of Kislev is about. Um, and I want to give us a bracha that we, we see where we are supposed to be, to be able to understand the parts of us, the rachal parts of us that we need to polish and shine and the things that we need to tweak a little bit to not be afraid of our Leah and to understand that when we shine a beautiful light in any place to ourselves personally and around us, it only brings more light and light and light together makes big, nice, beautiful bonfires. Have an awesome rest of the day. We should be blessed with really only revealed good and blessings. Have an awesome rest of the day.